Well, good morning and a Merry Christmas Eve Eve to you. It is uh, Christmas time once again, which in America means time for family gatherings, presents, trees, lights, decorations, food. And we have our traditions here. And to Americans, that's mostly what Christmas is about. Uh, when you leave America, though, you find very few other cultures celebrate Christmas the way we do. We recently went to Spain, for example, and they celebrate Christmas, but it's less over the top. So a few people might have an artificial tree, but no one's going down and, or, or going to, into the marketplace and buying a tree, and a live tree, bringing it into their apartment. It's just not a, a thing they do over there. And also, kids might get a few presents for Christmas, but they don't open them on December 25th. Most will open them on January 6th. That's, uh, January 6th is a Catholic holiday known as Epiphany, or King's Day, and it commemorates the day when supposedly the Magi showed up to visit Jesus and present him their gifts. So that's the day when most of them will exchange their gifts. Now, I also remember my grandma telling me how she used to celebrate Christmas growing up as a child. This was as a kid in Italy in the 1930s. And for her, Christmas mostly involved going to church, having a feast. And she would tell us how on a good year, if it was a good year, they might receive some fruit in their stocking. And can you just imagine how your kids would react if all they got for Christmas were a few oranges in their stocking? And that was a good year. But the fact is, different cultures celebrate in different ways. And again, our our celebrations in America are mostly a product of our kind of consumerism and affluence. It makes us wonder, is our version of Christmas really better, though? You could argue against that, because the more you keep adding all this stuff to what Christmas is, the more you detract from really the meaning of Christmas and the focus of Christmas, which, of course, is Christ. And maybe getting nothing but a few oranges is better if it means you're going to pay more attention to Christ, who is, after all, the reason for the season. The holiday is meant to be, after all, an occasion for remembering the, the birth of the Savior, the coming of the Messiah into the world, and we're so easily distracted. But if other cultures celebrate Christmas differently, that's only more true historically. You know, throughout history, Christmas has looked very different. Most civilizations, of course, throughout time never even heard of Christ and therefore never heard of Christmas. They had no knowledge of it. The ones that did, though, usually under the lordship of the Catholic Church, Christmas for them was a time to go to Mass and maybe have a feast. What's interesting, though, is that the early church did not celebrate Christmas at all. Christmas was not originally a holiday of the church. Remembering the birth of the Savior wasn't really a, a thing. It wasn't that big of a deal. Easter was a big deal. Christmas was not even on the calendar. It really wasn't until the Catholic Church rose to power that Christmas became an important day on the church calendar. That's because the Catholic Church more or less created Christmas as a religious feast to replace winter solstice. It gave them a way to assimilate pagans into the empire. And Pope Julius I chose December 25th as the day for this feast in the 4th century. And before that, Christmas largely was not known, was not celebrated. Most people did not even know what Christmas was. In fact, it was in this climate that one of the worst Christmases ever took place. In fact, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it was the worst Christmas ever. There was a small town before anyone even knew what Christmas was, and they, they had no knowledge of Christ or Christmas, but they experienced the worst Christmas ever. 
This little town, the, the, the Christmas celebration they received, so to speak, was so devastating it threatened to end even all future Christmases. It was so bad. And can you imagine what that could be? You know, what was the worst Christmas ever? What Christmas time threatened to end all future Christmases? And we're going to find out this morning. You can open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 2. We were just there. If you need help, you can grab a pew Bible and go to page 1 of the New Testament. It's real easy this morning. And you'll find Matthew chapter 2. But for this Christmas sermon, we're going to look at the events surrounding Christ's birth. It's found in Matthew 2. Technically, these tell us about what happened after Jesus was born. As we read for scripture reading at the end of Matthew 1, it tells us of the birth of Christ. You know that story well, I'm sure. Luke 2 adds some details, namely how Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem for the census. And while there, the time came for her to give birth. Uh, There was no room for them in the inn, though, so Christ was laid in the manger. Later that night, the angels announced to a group of shepherds the Messiah was born. And so they go to Bethlehem, they find him, they worship him there as well. I'm sure you're familiar with all these details. In fact, I bet most of you have a little nativity scene at home that that pictures the night of Christ's birth. But over the, the many years of our Christmas sermons together at this church, I think we've by now debunked most of the myths surrounding this, you know, the modern nativity scene. You know, what kind of myths are we talking about in case you're new? Well, for example, when did Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem? Most think like on the night of Christ's birth, but not quite. At least the Bible doesn't say. You know, Luke simply tells us they were in Bethlehem and then the time came for Mary to give birth. In fact, Luke Luke chapter 2 verse 6 gives the impression they were already in Bethlehem for some time before that happened. Could have been days or weeks in preparation for the census. And then you have this inn, right? This mysterious inn and the vacancy sign was dimmed. There's no room in the inn. You know, in every children's Christmas play, one kid always gets stuck with the role of the innkeeper. And the innkeeper has just one line. I guess it's better than the tree or like a sheep or something. But the innkeeper has one line. And the line is, there's no room at the inn. But did you know that there's no innkeeper mentioned in the Bible? No innkeeper is to be found. In fact, most people think, you know, Mary and Joseph, they were hastily rejected by all of these ancient motels. And so they wandered into some barn to give birth. That is also most likely not true. Now, it's true. Luke chapter 2, verse 7 says Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And you think the word inn, you think like Motel 6. But this word for inn simply refers to a guest lodging area. And most large homes had an inn or like a a guest house, a guest room. In fact, you remember the Last Supper? Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. And that took place where? In an upper room. It's the same word for in. They they took place in the guest chamber. And so it's more likely that Mary and Joseph were staying with someone they knew, probably a relative in Bethlehem. You know, that's the city they went to to register anyway when Jesus was born. But like Luke says, there was no room for them in the inn or in the guest chamber. It's already taken probably by someone from the census. And so that means they would have stayed in the common area of the house. You know, later on, we find Mary and Joseph, and baby Jesus. And they're not in a barn, they're in a house. 
And chances are that it's the same house they were in when Christ was born. They, they never moved. Now, at the time, it is true there were household animals kept in the common area of the ancient Near East house. Not pets, more like livestock. So we're not talking dogs and cats, more like sheep and goats you'd have in like your living room. And so it's likewise true. Jesus was laid in a manger, which is really just a feeding trough for animals. But did you also know no specific animals are mentioned in scripture at the time of his birth? And almost certainly, you know, large cattle were not grazing next to Jesus while he was laid there. And bottom line, though, it's, it's highly doubtful that Mary and Joseph wandered into some strange barn to give birth because they were rejected from all of the, the hotels of the ancient world. Now, in your nativity scene, I'm sure you also have some shepherd, a group of shepherds visiting the baby Jesus, and they're safe. That's true. They were there. You can keep them there. Later on that night, the, the angels announced to the shepherds the birth of Christ, and they came and, and worshiped him. But then I bet you also have those three kings right there around baby Jesus, night of his birth. Not, not quite. That, that too would be wrong. And first, these guys weren't kings. They were magi. Second, there weren't three of them, likely many more. And third, they, they did not show up on the night of Christ's birth. They showed up weeks, if not months later. And so if you have three little wise men figures in your nativity scene, you got to get them out of there. Now, as I've, I said before, you, did, you don't have to throw them away. Just take them, put them across the room so it shows like they're en route. That's, that's kind of what we do. It's, it's the more biblically accurate nativity scene. You know, get rid of the cattle, get rid of the magi, and you're good. Now, the role of these magi, though, is quite significant in the Christmas account in Scripture. And that's what we're going to learn here in Matthew chapter 2. And the response of these magi, when they do show up and find the Messiah, is how they respond is quite telling, especially when it's contrasted with the response of King Herod and the response of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. That's something we've actually studied before in a previous Christmas sermon, but you know, this time I want us to, to, to pay extra special attention to King Herod and the response of Herod, something we have not done so far. And his response to the birth of the Messiah was no doubt the wrong response. But the heart behind it is more common than you might think. And so we're going to find this morning from Herod a, a cautionary tale. While at the same time we'll be reminded of, of the purpose of Christ's coming to earth, which is to our encouragement. And so for our time together, pretty simple. We're just going to walk through Matthew 2 and just relive the events following Christ's birth and find their significance for us today with a special focus at the end on Herod. So let's do that now. Look at Matthew 2 and we'll start in verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, already, what do you learn from this verse? Well, you learn the Magi arrived after Jesus was already born. In fact, they don't even show up in Bethlehem. You realize they first stop in Jerusalem. Now, like I said, we want to eventually get to Herod's response to the birth of the Christ, but... You know, we do need to get acquainted with these magi first. They play a pretty big role in this account. 
So who were these guys? Well, again, they weren't kings. They were magi or wise men from the east, the region of Persia or Babylon. And they were known for their advanced knowledge in astrology or the natural sciences. Some of them, of course, dealt with the occult, and they were known as diviners or magicians, but not all of them. Whatever their specialization, these magi were highly regarded in the East, and they rose to great prominence and even wealth. Now, this background makes their appearance in Matthew 2 quite strange, because these are really the last guys we would expect to come and worship the Jewish Messiah King, right? Like, what do these pagan Gentile wise men from the East, what do they want to do with the Jewish Messiah King? But verse 2 confirms, like, they're coming for the right purpose. Verse 2 says, they were asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And you see, like, they didn't come to take in the sights. This wasn't a vacation for them. They did not come to behold Herod's temple. That was being built or they didn't even come to see Herod himself, who was the acting king of the Jews. They rather came to find the Christ, the newborn Messiah, the king of the Jews, and they came to worship him. This just goes to show you that God can draw anyone to himself and that no matter your background, when God calls you, you will be drawn. And Jesus, after all, was he not meant to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles? Now, it says these magi came from the east. Again, that's the the Persia or Babylon region, which today is modern-day Iraq or Iran. And that means that we're we're talking about a 700-mile journey that they made to try and find this newborn king. No cars, no flights. It's a long and arduous trip filled with cost and risk and sacrifice. And there's really nothing in it for them. This was not a pilgrimage to try and gain favor from the new king. They don't ask for riches. They don't ask for a kickback. They don't ask for wealth. In fact, they they go and they give him wealth and gifts. It appears these magi are coming with the right motives and that they they come to truly just worship the newborn king. Now, when exactly did they arrive, though? This is an important question. You'll notice Matthew, he already tells us they show up in Jerusalem after Jesus is born. But how long after? Well, Luke 2 gives us some clues. You know, what else happened after Jesus was born? Do you remember? Eight days later, he was circumcised, according to Jewish law. That was pretty normal at the time. And then 33 days after that, what happened? Well, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem, to the temple, for the dedication offering. This also was according to Jewish law. This offering, for every firstborn male especially, right, was to consist of a one-year-old lamb. But if if your family was extremely poor... Instead of a lamb, you could offer like a couple of pigeons. And so Mary and Joseph show up with Jesus to dedicate him at the temple. And what do they sacrifice? Well, Luke 2 tells us, well, a couple of pigeons because they were extremely poor. 
When you think about this fact, though, it's actually a pretty strong clue that the Magi had not arrived at that time. That's already 40 days later. And why is this? Well, I'm sure you remember what gifts the Magi brought to Jesus. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Now, these aren't typical baby shower gifts. Like, you know, what's a baby supposed to do with a little bar of gold? Like maybe some diapers or some blankets. But these, of course, they're all items of wealth. These were gifts fit for a king. And the point is that after Mary and Joseph received these gifts from the Magi, they were not so poor anymore. And it stands to reason that after they received this treasure, they could have easily afforded that one-year-old lamb to offer at the temple. But the fact that they could not, uh, that we can surmise that most likely the Magi had not arrived at this time. So you put it all together and it seems the Magi, they didn't visit Jesus until he was between maybe two and upwards of even 20 months old. We get that upper, upper limit of 20 months because Mary and Joseph could have lingered in Bethlehem for some time. But not too long though, because the Magi interact with Herod, but King Herod himself dies just a year or two after Christ is born. So it can't be much more than like you know, 20 months Anyway, the point, though, is the Magi, they're definitely not showing up on the night of his birth. They're arriving sometime later, looking for the Messiah. And like we said, they're they're not even showing up in Bethlehem. They're going to Jerusalem first. And, And do you know why that is? Why do they show up first in Jerusalem? Well, they they saw this star, and whatever it was, it indicated to them the time of the Messiah's birth. And most likely when they saw the star, that's when they began their trek west. You know, did these guys learn something from Daniel about the timing of the Messiah's birth in relation to the stars? It's possible. Or did God just supernaturally reveal himself to these men? More likely. But when they knew the time had come, they journeyed west to Jerusalem. And that's not because the star led them. If you look closely at these verses here, it, it never says they followed the star to Jerusalem. No, they, they saw the star in the east. It indicated to them somehow the Messiah has come. And so they ventured west to Jerusalem. But why would they go to Jerusalem? Well, if you were looking for the newborn king of the Jews, you go to Jerusalem. I mean, it's the, the city of the king. It's where they expected to find the Messiah, which means they expected the Jewish people to have already identified the newborn king and perhaps even to have enthroned him. They expected, though, to find the Messiah already there in Jerusalem. But as you know, that's not what happens and that's not how it goes. Now look at verse 3. We're introduced to Herod again. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. These magi, they're showing up in Jerusalem. They're looking for the king of the Jews. Only they're not talking about Herod. Now, Herod was the acting king of the Jews. But these guys have no interest in Herod. And so when Herod hears about this, he's troubled. It says all Jerusalem is troubled with him. And that's because the people know when Herod is troubled, it's going to spell trouble. Something good is not going to come. And so this verse tells us several more things. First, it tells us there were likely more than three magi. 
And most have assumed throughout history there are three because three gifts were given. That's the only reason people think there's three. But look, three guys walking around Jerusalem would not have caused much of a stir. This verse gives us the impression, though, that the whole town was talking about this procession of wise men from the east looking for the Messiah. The news made its way all the way up to King Herod. It's not an easy thing to do. And also, just think about it. You're going on a 700-mile journey through the desert. You're carrying a lot of wealth, gold, frankincense, myrrh. You don't make that trip with three guys. You know, most likely these magi traveled with a sizable caravan of servants and animals as well. I think it's better to picture a large procession entering Jerusalem from the east. That certainly would have caused quite a stir. The Bible, though, doesn't tell us how many magi they were, but I think it's safe to say there's, there's probably more than just three. Why did their arrival trouble Herod, though? I bet you can figure that one out all by yourself. Again, who was the existing king of the Jews at the time? Herod. Yet you've got this entourage of wealthy magi. They're pulling up to Jerusalem. They're, they're here to worship the king of the Jews. But they're not talking about Herod. They, they really have no interest in mighty you know, Herod the Great or his temple. They, they don't care. They want to find this newborn king of the Jews. Herod has been eclipsed. And that fact does not sit well with him. Like I said, I want us to explore more Herod's response to the birth of Christ later on. So for now, let me fill you in on some background to Herod. Things we know about King Herod. Herod was a Jew by religion, but an Edomite by descendant, which means the Jews never really embraced him. He was never like their king He was not enthroned by the Jews. Rather, in 40 BC, the Roman Senate just declared Herod is the king of the Jews. His rule was characterized by a desire to build his own name and to magnify his own glory. So naturally, he was a builder. He believed that through these grand building projects, he could build his name and that it would last forever. And and in a way, he was right. He built all throughout the region And even built new cities. Chief of these building projects, though, was his vast rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. This was meant to appease the Jews and also kind of keep them in line, keep them docile. He was giving them a temple. And it became known as Herod's Temple. And that was not on accident. That was on purpose. It's kind of like today how advertisers buy rights to stadiums. And so like in New England, it's Gillette Stadium. Like what does a razor company have to do with a football stadium? But, you know, Gillette Stadium. And this was Herod's Temple. It was known as Herod's Temple. And from this, he was getting the glory. He was magnifying his own name. Herod was also all about keeping his power and his name indefinitely. That he was literally a guy who would do anything to now stay in power. Any threat to his name was dealt with viciously. Herod had his own two sons killed when suspicion arose that they would become the the focal point of a potential Jewish insurrection. He also had his wife's brother drowned, and eventually he forced his wife to kill herself too. Any threat 
to his power was violently ended. His was a reign of terror and was all designed to just maintain his glory, his name at whatever cost. Herod died, you know, roughly a year after Jesus was born. But before his death, he knew no one would mourn him. And so as a final act of cruelty, he had many of the most prominent citizens of Jerusalem arrested, rounded up, and imprisoned. And then he gave orders for them to be executed the moment of his death. That way, it would appear that the people of Jerusalem were mourning for him. And this is Herod. This is Herod the Great, as he wanted to be called. And you can understand now, as you return to Matthew 2 and you look at verse 3 again, and when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That should make perfect sense to you now, why he was so troubled. These magi show up. They're looking to worship the king of the Jews, and they're not talking about Herod. He's, he's troubled. This is another threat to his name, to his rule, to his power. And if you know Herod, he's, he's not going to let this stand. He's not just going to do nothing about this. So let's keep reading. Verse 4. It says, Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now you'll notice Herod here, he understands the Magi were looking for the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. He knew about the the prophecies, some of them, of the Messiah. But he doesn't know too much, so he assembles the religious leaders in Jerusalem. You know, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the, the cream of the crop. And he inquires of them, Now, when is the Messiah supposed to be born? Or rather, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they know the answer. They know the textbook answer. And so they they spurred out, you know, Bethlehem, of course, Bethlehem of Judea. And they correctly quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which prophecies that indeed the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, Herod has figured out the precise location where this supposed new Messiah King has been born. All he needs to know now is just exactly how old is he? When was he born? Because again, this is after the birth. So just how much? And clearly he's hatching some sort of a plan. But what's he up to? We'll look at verse 7. It says, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. You notice here, Herod, he's, he's only interested in the timing of this mysterious star. No other concern. Just wants to know when. You notice this was done in secret. This was kept out of the public eye. He didn't want, to pe- want people knowing about this. Does Herod really want to go and worship this newborn Messiah King? I think you know that's not going to be the case. 
But he wanted the Magi to believe that so they would come back and tell him exactly where Messiah was to be found. So he sends them off. And off the Magi go. And I bet you know what happens next. Look at verse 9. The Magi go off. It says, after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, as we said before, they first saw, saw this, this star thing in the east. And whatever it was, it, it doesn't say it guided them to Jerusalem. It does not appear that was the case. But now, however, this star reappears. And this time it does guide them five miles south. From Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Just five miles to the little town of Bethlehem. And clearly this was no ordinary star. It's supernatural in appearance, in purpose, in function. This star then hovers right over the place where Jesus was. Notice it's not a barn. It's a house. They're in a house. But these magi know once the star it stops moving, it's over this house. They know. We've arrived. I mean, just imagine this several month, 700 mile long journey to find the Messiah. And they finally found him. After all that time, the, the expense, the difficulty, the, the danger, they finally found him. And so they rejoice. They enter the house. They saw the child. They knew God had revealed to them, this is it. This is the one. And so they fall down and they worship him. And just picture this is little child born to a peasant, Mary and Joseph, a couple of peasants. These magi were men of wealth and power, vastly more renowned than Mary and Joseph. But God had revealed to them that this, this little baby was the promised son of David. He's the one who would save his people from their sins. And furthermore, This baby was also a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's not just the savior of the Jews, but he's also the savior of the world. These magi knew that this child, he was their king as well. Because he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's worthy of worship of all the nations. And so in worship, they bow down. They present their offerings to him. Gifts of wealth, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And just an expression of worship. They ask for nothing back. They're not looking for recognition. They're not looking even like James and John. You know, a place in the kingdom. This is just a pure act of worship. Well, it comes time then for them to depart. But, not the way you might expect. Verse 12. It says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, The Magi left for their own country by another way. Here these Magi receive direct revelation from God in the form of a dream. Likely it's not the first time. But here they're warned that Herod is up to no good. 
And so they return home another way. They don't pass back through Jerusalem. And Joseph too is warned by God that Herod is up to no good. And that they too need to flee. Verse 13. It says, now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Joseph is likewise warned that Herod is going to try and destroy the child. It's a strong word. It means just utter annihilation. Now, if Herod killed his own two sons because they were a potential threat to his rule, he would not bat an eye at killing the son of a couple of peasants. So Joseph immediately heeds this warning and they go to Egypt. That's an event that has its own prophetic significance. We'll save for another time. But now finally, though, like I said before, we want to really focus in on Herod's response, his ultimate response. And we see this now in verse 16. So look at verse 16. It says, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. You know, this caravan of Magi, I'm sure, was difficult to hide. So when it became apparent that they weren't going to go back to Jerusalem, that they were already off back to their home country, Herod knew he was tricked. And so he became enraged, it says. This word speaks of an outburst of wrath and indignation. He was fuming. And, well, you know Herod now. He was not going to let this deception stand. I mean, just the thought. That the Jews, and he didn't really believe in the Messiah, but just the thought that the Jews might identify a child who was going to be the newborn king, that's a threat. He's not going to let that be. And this set Herod off the deep end. So he sent, it says, and he slew all the male children in Bethlehem and its vicinity, every boy two years old and under. And can you just imagine that? And at the time, Bethlehem was a small village. So scholars estimate, you know, we're talking maybe 20 boys or less. All the boys under two were slaughtered. Again, hearing about the time of the star from the Magi. Again, Jesus could have been upwards of 20 months at this point. We don't know for sure. But either way, it seems Herod was rounding up to make sure he really got the Messiah King. But, you know, either way, this was a huge tragedy. This was state-sponsored terrorism, right? I mean, and this is also, I think, this is a part of the Christmas story we gloss over. We don't really think about this, this verse, this, this part of the Christmas text. And you definitely don't hear about this in Christmas plays. But you do need to just think about this. Think about this event. And first, just picture the, the terror 
and the helplessness. This was a huge injustice. And just imagine living under a totalitarian regime. You have no power, no arms, no defense. The military enters your town, rounds up the infant boys, and slaughters them. There's nothing you can do. You have zero recourse. There's no one to call. There's no police. You can't hire a lawyer. There's no legal team. There's literally nothing you can do but suffer. That's the definition of injustice. And this is all for what? Right? Those, those 20 or so mothers were bereaved of their sons. All, all for what? For pride. Just Herod's pride. This is all due to one man's desperate attempt to preserve his power, to seek his name, to maintain his own little kingdom at whatever cost. And Herod was willing to kill his own sons to just keep his his grasp on his glory. The more you think about this, really meditate on this part of the text, the more Herod's crime comes to represent just the culmination of everything wrong with this world. And this is a fallen, broken world. It's characterized by sin and suffering and injustice. How did it get this way? I thought God made the world good. God's good, right? Well, yes, but the problem is us. Is man's sin and rebellion against a good God. And you know, what's the essence of that rebellion from the very beginning, from even back to the, the Garden of Eden? It's self. It is pride. You know, God alone, he's supreme and worthy and good and righteous. And his ways are best. But Adam and Eve, starting with them, they rebelled. No, no, not God's will be done. My will be done. I think I know what's best here. And they went their own way. And the result of that sin has been separation from God and thereafter suffering. The ceaseless suffering in this world, because as Proverbs says, there is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And you see, the same spirit of rebellion is now born in the hearts of all people. You may not be nearly as vile as Herod, but you know, that same spirit of rebellion against God and his ways is in all of us. And that same pride and selfishness and self-centeredness That's found inside all of our fallen hearts. We are born rebels, wanting to go our own way. We don't naturally seek God in his glory. We we want our own glory. We we want our name to be magnified. We want others to serve us and to the praise of the glory of our name. And it's it's this fundamental self-willed pride. The more you think about it, it's just behind all the evils of this world. We just think, for example, how much suffering in the world has resulted from wars and bloodshed. And it's all for what? The vast majority, it's all because, you know, a handful of men wanted to keep their power or expand their little earthly kingdom. And even on a smaller scale, think about all the personal conflict in your life. or The broken relationships you might have. The more you think about it, they all come from that same root of pride, self-will, self-concern. All sin and really all suffering can be traced back to this, this wrong elevation of self, of pride. We, we've exalted ourselves 
above God, our creator. And again, you may not be as vile as Herod, but you need to realize such a fallen and self-serving heart plagues us all. You know, the essence of man's rebellion is perfectly summarized in Psalm 2. We read a little bit at the beginning of the service. Just listen to Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3. It characterizes Herod, but really all of us. It says, the kings of the earth take their stand against, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters away from us and cast away their cords from us. You know, like Herod, we all in our sin, we want to tear God's cords away from us. Meaning we don't want to be ruled by the Lord. We don't want to bow down. God's will, no, my will be done. I'm going to have things my own way. I will rule my own life. Thank you very much. I will build my name and my kingdom. And this life is all about my glory. Just an exaltation of self. Herod may be the extreme example, but that, that root problem is in every single one of us. And like I said, the more you think about it, it explains everything wrong with this world because only God is worthy of that type of exaltation. When you start exalting yourself or others like that, it only leads to sin and ruin and hardship. But this also highlights why the Messiah came and why Jesus was born into this world. And when God sees man's rebellion against his ways, he's not concerned. He's not scared. He laughs. That's what Psalm 2 continues to say. It says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You know, God's anointed one, the Messiah, he was always going to come. There's never a plan where the Messiah was not going to come. And he was always going to send his son to judge this world, to take it back, to end man's rebellion. There's no stopping the Messiah from shattering the wicked like clay and from ruling the nations with the rod of iron, like Psalm 2 goes on to say. And look, when you see Herod's crimes, when you think about that injustice, don't you realize this world needs judgment, right? There's so much wickedness and justice and rather injustice that God's righteous judgment is needed. It's only his place to give, but it is his to give. But the fact of the matter is though, all are worthy of such judgment because all have sinned one way or another. We've all fallen short of God's glory. None are righteous, not even one, Romans tells us. And so we all stand under the just condemnation of God. And we're all on the path of the Messiah's righteous judgment. But you see, the good news is that God is also a God of great love and mercy and compassion. And though he's perfectly just, he's also perfectly loving. And for his own greater glory and our good, He made a plan to save this fallen creation. Not simply judge it and do away with it, but to redeem. And where some, instead of receiving judgment, would find mercy. If that's going to happen, though, if God is going to redeem any part of this fallen creation, it's going to require what? A Savior. 
going to require a savior. And this is why God sent Christ into the world first as a man born of a virgin. He sent Christ first, not to judge, but to redeem, to redeem man by dying in his place as a substitute sacrifice. You know, unlike Herod, who is willing to kill sons to get his own glory, God the Father was willing to sacrifice his own son to bring many sons to glory. And so this Messiah came first to save. And as the angels announced, he would be called Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. Yeah, you know, we're not as bad as Herod, but we have sins that need saving too. We are just as condemned. We need this Messiah. And you realize Jesus did not come for a clean people. He came to save them from their sins. They were an unclean people. All are guilty, fallen, and corrupt, and all are worthy of judgment. But that's who Jesus came for. Not the healthy, but the sick. To, to bind their wounds to forgive them, to redeem them. And as you know, Christ would not redeem them in his birth, but in his death and resurrection, where this child would have to go on to die on that cross to make atonement for our sins. And that's where he bore the wrath of God in our place. He paid the penalty for all the sins that we have and the penalty we deserve, satisfying the justice of God in our place, that we might experience the love of God. This is what Christ did for us. And now by believing in him, like, like the Magi, where you, you, you bow down to him, you recognize him. He, he is king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And you bow down in repentance and faith. You, you believe, you trust him for your salvation. And then you will be saved and made new. And given new life. You know, there's good news here in Matthew, namely that Herod failed, right? Herod failed in his attempt. That poor little town of Bethlehem, that was the worst Christmas ever. You know, granted, it wasn't the night of December 25th, but that was the worst celebration of Christ's birth, Herod's slaughter of the innocents. And Herod, if he was successful, well, that would have ended all future Christmases, if he had killed the Messiah at birth. But, of course, who can ward off the hand of the Lord? Who can frustrate his plans? Jesus lived, Herod failed, and then at the right time, Jesus died. You see, he had to die. He always had to die. He was born to die for us, but only at the right time, in the right way, on that cross. And this is why we, we celebrate Christmas. And this is why Christmas has endured. Because Jesus came. And because he died at the right time for us. Not at birth. But later on. You realize if the Savior came and if he never made it to the cross. That there would be no salvation. Man's rebellion would continue unchecked. And we would still be dead in our sins. But it's because that he came. And then he lived. And then he died for us and rose again, that we too can have life everlasting. And as Christians, this is what we need to remember. Even on Christmas, we remember his, his life and his death at the right time. 
And this is really what Christmas is about. The coming of the Savior into the world to save a lost people. To save a a dirty people. People under judgment. And that's every single one of us. Jesus came to set things right. He came to save his people from their sins. Which means he had to die in their place. And these are the truths that not just on Easter, but even on Christmas, we remember and we celebrate. Every day, we aim to remember and celebrate this, the coming of the Christ and all that it means. And so the question now simply is, how will you respond to the good news of Christmas? You know, will you, like Herod, reject Christ? You just continue to go your own way. You're, you're continuing to build your own little kingdom. You're living for yourself. You're doing it all for your name. I would tell you to beware, for you only find dissatisfaction in this life and then Christ as judge in the next. Rather, I pray you would, you would find him now and take refuge in him now by faith and be saved. In fact, if you haven't, do, do so today. And today can be the day of salvation for you. And there's really no better day. You would receive the, the best Christmas present ever, like Don was sharing in scripture reading, the, the gift of forgiveness, reconciliation with your God, and even new life and new hope. It's only found in Christ. And you must go to him like the Magi in reverence, in worship, in submission, and in faith. You present your whole life to him, recognizing he is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He's your King one way or another. But as you bow down in faith, he will invite you into his kingdom of peace and joy forever. And so may that be our response. Just like Psalm 2 says at the ending, verse 12, it says, Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. May we take refuge in Christ today and on all of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to be here this morning to remember the birth of Christ and all that it means. And Lord, we can, in a sense, remember the coming of Christ and and the good news thereafter without first pausing to remember the bad news. Christ had to come into this world because of some bad news. The bad news of a world lost in sin and rebellion, where we all were seeking our own way and living for our own name, our own glory, wrongly so. It produced nothing but sin and suffering and, and ultimately death. The way of man ends death, But it's because of that bad news that you sent the Christ to come, to be born of a virgin and to live a life, to die at the right time on that cross for us. There he was the Lamb of God who took away our sins. And in rising again to new life, he now stands offering us new life as we turn to him by faith. This is the, the real good news we celebrate each and every day. It's the gospel and it's what we're about. And I pray as we remember with our families today, throughout the week, that we make this the focal point of Christmas. We have our traditions, we have our celebrations here in America, and those, those can have a place, Lord, but may we never let them eclipse what it's all about. That we are Christians, we are followers of this Christ, this Messiah, 
And so may he be that the, the joy of our hearts today and, and always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.